Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of Christ, but that you don't leave us alone until the final day, that you continue to restore us, to make us new, to change us, and to grow us in your grace. I pray that as we turn our attention to the book of James this morning, that you would use this text to continue to restore us in your wisdom and love. And as we receive it, we would walk more deeply into your desires for us, that we would receive more fully your grace together. In Christ we pray, amen. Well, I'm happy to be with you this morning. I am so grateful to be here. We have been praying for this church since before it started, and we, hit, we are so grateful to hear of all of the updates from Jacob in particular. And I want to let you know that Resurrection Church prays for you on a regular basis. Um, and we are grateful that you pray for us. I, I am so thankful that in the Twin Cities, there are so many churches that are preaching the gospel and that are partnering together. And, and I'm so thankful to be part of that. Uh, I would love to tell you all about our church and everything that we've been doing the last few years, but that's not why we're here, and I hear I only have 30 minutes, so I'm, I'm not going to do that, but if you would like to learn more about what, what God has been doing with us, ask Jacob or talk to me afterward, but I'd like to draw your attention to James chapter 1, and I want us to think about the way that God uses trials in our lives. Uh, There's an article in the Atlantic that I read recently. I think it's titled, Why the Last Ten Years Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And we might say that about the last two years in particular, as we've gone through pandemic, political turmoil, we've gone through social unrest, uh, stock market crashes, drought in the nation. We look at a lot of things that have been going on, and we might simply say, we're experiencing trials everywhere we look as a nation, as a community, and all of that is on top of the pain and the trials that we just experience in our everyday lives that are common to our human experience. The trials of junior hires and high schoolers going through the awkwardness of what it is to be a junior hire and high schooler. Young couples who struggle with infertility, families who deal with strife, marriages that are in turmoil, churches that struggle Pain is just this universal language in our human experience. As we experience pain, even though we know everyone else is experiencing it too, we can really only feel our own in the moment. And we want to know what to do with it. We have questions about how it is that I, as a Christian, can experience so much pain and hardship when Jesus said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How is it that Christians experience pain? We start looking for answers to these questions, and we might hear someone like Oprah Winfrey, who just says, Turn your wounds into wisdom. Or Gandhi, who will tell us that no one can hurt us without giving them permission. Or just the good old American idea of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. But when we turn to those things, eventually we find out they just don't work for us. They just don't cut it. We need a different answer. C.S. Lewis starts us out by reminding us that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, and he shouts to us in our pain. 
I think for a lot of us, especially over the last two years, we would say that God is shouting to us in our pain. We're not sure what he's saying. How do we figure that out? What does God want to show us, to teach us in the trials, in the pain that we experience? Well, there's no one text of scripture that can give us that answer. The breadth of the human experience of pain and suffering and trial requires the full breadth of Scripture to answer that question. But I think in James chapter 1, we have a good start. We have a good general answer that puts us in the right direction. Because James is writing a letter that he plans to send to churches all over the place outside of Jerusalem. He's writing to the diaspora is what they're called, the 12 tribes that have been dispersed abroad, and he wants to give them answers to general problems in the human experience. So this morning, I want to consider the first 12 verses and just give you four truths about trials that will put you in the right direction, that will get you started on answering that question of what God is trying to say to you in the pain and suffering that you experience. So four truths about trials. The first truth is that trials are for our good. Trials are for our good. James starts this letter in a really shocking and surprising way if you think about it. He says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Who else is saying that except for weirdos? You know what I mean? Um, if someone else is saying that, we think that they're a masochist or a sadist or, or just plain weird. Consider it a great joy when you experience various trials. What does he mean by that? Uh, before we can understand what he means by consider it a great joy, let's stop and consider what various trials are. What is he calling us to consider a great joy? This word trial, I think, has two relevant definitions that James is drawing on. On the one hand, a trial is a test that's intended to draw out what's inside of us. It's a test that's intended to reveal uh, the character or the nature of something. So if you think about it in the pharmaceutical world, a medication will go under trial to reveal what it actually can accomplish. Or in, like, the world of metallurgy, Metals are purified through this trial, right? They're heated up. It reveals what kind of metal there is. Uh, In the athletic world, there are trials that you have to go through if you want to compete at the highest levels. So if you want to run in the Boston Marathon, you have to run the trial race to see if you can actually stick with the greatest athletes. It's going to reveal who you are or what you are. And when James is talking about trials, on the one hand, I think he's talking about that kind of trial. Situations that draw out of us what's actually inside of us, that reveal what's actually going on in our lives and in our hearts, that reveal who we truly are. So in this sense, the trial is the hot water that draws out what's in the tea bag that maybe you can't see from the outside. On the other hand, this word trial can be defined as a situation that tempts you to do something wrong. Uh, We might use the synonym, a temptation here. It's the same word 
it's translated in different ways depending on the context. So when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, it's to be tempted. But it's also a test because that temptation reveals what's actually on the inside. These things work together. And when James tells us to consider it a great joy that whenever we experience various trials, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about any situation or circumstance that will reveal what's inside of us and potentially also give us an opportunity to do something wrong. Well, that's about everything that's happened nationally in the last couple years and probably our moment-by-moment situations in life on a daily level. Though, of course, there are certain circumstances that arise that we identify as testing points or trials or temptations in our lives. Well, I don't know about you, but when I encounter these situations, I don't think of them as opportunities for great joy. But that's exactly what James is instructing us to do. He wants us to consider them a great joy. Now, I don't want you to miss here what James is saying. He is not saying, I want you to feel joy throughout your experience of the trial. He's not saying a a righteous Christian will just smile all the time regardless of their circumstances. That would be disingenuous. That, That does not match the Christian experience. So when you hear this, I don't want you to say, If I'm experiencing a hardship, I need to smile about it. Otherwise, I'm not being a good Christian. Um, I I think sometimes we can feel that way, though. We, We can say a truly Christian response would be just happiness about everything. That's not reality. And that was not Jesus's experience either. So don't hear James in that way. I also don't want you to hear James as saying, Because you're a Christian, whenever a hardship happens, it's going to be easy for you. That's not what he's saying either. So so when you read, particularly in the ESV, to consider it all joy, he's not saying the whole experience will be a happy thing. Instead, what he's trying to tell you is to consider this an opportunity for joy, and especially for future joy. So the joy of a trial is not very often joy in the moment, but it's an opportunity that will produce future joy. We know that this is what he's talking about because of what he goes on to say. He says in verse 3 that you can consider trials a great joy or an opportunity for future joy because of what you know is going to happen. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So he's trying to tell us that the trial that you're about to experience or that you're currently experiencing now will produce the virtue of endurance. That's a good thing. Um, And it's a good thing because endurance is not something that we can choose to do on our own. Endurance can only happen when we're forced to actually endure something. Uh, So the logic is like this. For much of our life, we get to choose how long we're going to do a hard thing. Um, If you're going to exercise, you can choose how long you're going to do that hard exercise. And you can stop whenever you want. Um, But for a trial, trials come upon you. They're bigger than you. You find yourself in them and you don't always know 
when it's going to end or if it's going to end and you have no other option but to keep on. So this trial that you encounter forces you to enter into a mode of faithfulness. That's why he talks about it as a testing of your faith. It it forces you into a faithfulness that brings with it longevity. That's not something that we can do on our own. So he's saying a trial is a good thing for you because it allows you to faithfully endure when otherwise you don't have that opportunity. But endurance isn't the final goal. It's it's doing something in us, but as endurance works itself out in our lives, it has an effect, and that is maturity and completeness, lacking nothing. That's what he says in verse 4. If you let endurance have its full effect, you'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This, I think, is where James can do something for us that worldly wisdom cannot do. What he is doing is giving us a vision of the future where we are not broken because of the brokenness we're experiencing. That's what trials are. We can think of them as things that fracture our life or that break us. James is telling us that they're good because when you come out on the other side, you won't be broken. Actually, you'll be complete and whole. What he's doing is challenging our perception of ourself that we're currently whole right now, that we're complete on this side of the trial. He's trying to show us that wholeness or completeness can only come as we pass through that trial in faith and arrive at the other side. So I want to give you two analogies for this that may be helpful. The first is of an athlete who has to train so that they can become a better athlete. Uh, So if you've ever been in a sport, you know that training is not always fun. In high school, I was a wrestler, and we would have to show up to two-a-day practices for much of the year, and they were grueling. They, They were hard. And as a high school athlete coming into it, I thought, I'm a good athlete already. Why do I need these things? I don't want to hurt this bad. But coming out on the other side, I was a better athlete as all athletes are, because the trial of that practice actually does something for you. It produces an endurance in you, and as you endure, you come out more whole and complete on the other side. I think that's just one example. We we could think about that in just about any area of life. In the academic world, the tests that you take are not just tests that reveal your knowledge, but they actually force you to become a better student. I think we know from the realm of human experience that hard things actually make us better than we were before, even though we can't see it in the moment. It's another illustration that I think is perhaps quite helpful. Don't look it up on your phones now, but when you get home, look it up. There's a Japanese art, and I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, so if there's anyone who who knows better, let me know, because I'm going to say this again in a couple weeks at our church, and I don't want to mess it up. But kintsugi is a Japanese art where pottery that's broken is mended with a lacquer that's dusted with gold. So they mix gold into the solution, and, and they put the pottery, the broken pottery, back together, 
And the idea is that when a breakage occurs, it's an event in the life of this object, and it doesn't end with the damage, and it doesn't end that object's existence. Instead, when things break, it's an opportunity for beauty to emerge and functionality to continue. So if you look at pictures, there's really beautiful art where like a teapot or something has broken completely and it's mended together and it's now more beautiful than it was before. I think that's a way that we can look at the trials in our lives. They might break us in one way or another, but in the end, if we endure in faithfulness, God will bring us through on the other side, mended and more beautiful than before. Now, you might object and say, that's fine for some people, but isn't that just naive optimism? Isn't that just hoping that things are going to work out in the end? That would be true only if God wasn't involved. But because God is involved, because he's the one who has designed the Christian life in this way, and because God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, we have proof that it works out this way. That Jesus could count his sufferings as an opportunity for joy. Not in the moment, but because of what he saw in front of him. So he approached the cross in agony, in brokenness, but with hope and joy because of the life that was promised to him by his father. And as we connect with Jesus Christ, we have that same hope promised to us as well. So truth number one is that trials are for our good. Truth number two, trials are not bigger than our God. So trials are for our good, but number two, trials are not bigger than our God. If trials were bigger than our God, we would only be left to a naive optimism or a certain kind of cynicism, not knowing what would happen. But because God is bigger than our trials, we can rest and trust in him. Our trials, whatever trial you're experiencing right now, is not powerful enough to push God's presence out of your life. Nor is it clever enough to outwit God's wisdom. God is bigger than your trial so you can rest in him. That's what James is getting at in verse 5 when he says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given him. James is trying to tell you that God is bigger than your trial so look to him for wisdom. We've probably all had the experience of being in a situation where we needed wisdom, we didn't know what to do, and we asked someone for help and they made fun of us, or they made us feel inferior for not already knowing what we needed to know. God is not like that. God is the opposite of that. When we come to God asking for wisdom, he doesn't make fun of us, he offers it freely and fully, and he offers it every time. God doesn't laugh at us. He doesn't disgrace us. And he welcomes us to ask for wisdom to navigate the trials we're in. And he's the one who can give it because he's bigger than our trial. He knows what we need. And I think on one level, there's a sense in which as we pray for God's wisdom, 
we ought to expect God's spirit to speak to us, to guide us, and to lead us in that individual circumstance. But there's also a sense in which God has already spoken and given us access to his wisdom, particularly in his word. And I think that's what James is communicating in chapter 3 when he outlines and distinguishes between worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. So, so I think what James is trying to say here is, look, you need wisdom in your trial. You need to ask God for that wisdom. And by the way, I'm going to outline the features of that wisdom so you have a good starting point. So what are the features of that wisdom? Well, in chapter 3, starting in like verse 13, he's, he talks about this wisdom from above. He contrasts it with wisdom from below. But here's his description of wisdom in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant. Now, now that's a hard word to translate. It might say teachable or easy to be entreated. The point is you're, you're not hard-headed, all right? God's wisdom is not hard-headed or stubborn, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. In the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So as we navigate our trials, we should look at this list and allow these virtues to guide the way that we respond to the circumstances that we're in. This is really hard. I think based on my experience of me and based on my experience as a pastor at a church and a pastor in connection to other churches, I I think that especially over the last two years, many Christians have convinced themselves that the circumstances of the last two years and whatever personal trials I'm experiencing now are so unique to me or unique to us, that God's wisdom won't cut it. Therefore, let's operate in ways that are not pure, or peace-loving, or gentle, or teachable, or full of mercy. I think that there is a problem in many Christian churches, in this moment in particular, where we have decided that we need the wisdom of the world to bring about God's work through our trials and circumstances instead of relying on a godly wisdom way of navigating them. Do you see what I mean? Where we think this hard thing is in front of me, I know God has something good on the other side, but the hard thing looks like it's, it's not going to bring it about. If I act peaceable as I go through this trial, or if I'm gentle, or if I'm merciful, I won't be strong enough to make it through and accomplish what I think needs to be accomplished. That's wisdom from below. That's being driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition. That's not walking the life of faith. So I want to encourage you as you encounter circumstances and situations, whether it's on a personal level, whether it's the way you're dealing with your spouse or your family or a fellow church member, or perhaps even more difficult is we experience things politically and culturally 
Do not rely on the wisdom of the world to navigate those situations. Allow yourself to be defined by the wisdom of God because it's this kind of wisdom that will bring you to the end product, that will bring the wholeness out of the brokenness, even if it doesn't seem like it. That's why James has to add that we should ask not like someone who doubts. And and I don't think this is a doubt about God's existence or something, but it's a doubt about whether or not God's wisdom will actually work. But once again, we need only to look to Jesus, the perfect wisdom of God, who overthrew everyone's expectation of what wise navigation of trials looked like. Because Jesus, even though it looks like he defeated and failed from the worldly point of view, he brought final victory. And he allows us to share in that victory. But ultimately, that victory comes through suffering and self-giving, through peace and gentleness, not through power and strength. So we don't conquer our trials through power, but through sacrifice, through self-giving, through allowing our lives to reflect the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. So truth number one, trials are for our good. Truth number two, Uh, God is bigger than our trials. Our trials are not bigger than God. Truth number three, trials remind us that we are not God. When we experience trials, we're reminded that we are not God. We experience hardship that we have no control over and that we could never see coming. And no one is exempt from that. None of us are exempt from trials. It doesn't matter what your financial situation is, where your social setting is, how forward-thinking you are. None of us can avoid trials forever. In verses 9 through 11, I think that's what James is trying to say. I'll admit, these, these verses seem like they don't belong here. Okay, so if you, if you were writing this letter, we wouldn't say what we, we wouldn't stick this in here because it doesn't make sense. So I can't defend what I'm about to say here. You'll have to trust me on it. Let me read the verses and then I'll tell. But, but the point is that I think James is trying to say is whether you're poor or rich, you can't escape trials. So poor people know it. Rich people, you might think that you can escape it. And that's us, all right? We think because we live in a modern economy, we have a nice bank account, we have a good home, we can escape trials. James is telling us you can't. All of that stuff's going to fade away. It can't shield you from the blazing heat of the trials that are coming your way. He says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. And I I think we need to put air quotes around exaltation. It's a little sarcastic. You know, from the outside, the poor person, the person in lowly circumstances, it looks like they're not exalted. But what does that person know? That person knows, I need God. I need God's wisdom. In that way, he's exalted. He sees the world from a higher point of view. He knows that he needs God already. But let the rich boast in his, quote-unquote, humiliation. From the outside, that wealth looks like exaltation. But ultimately, that will be the rich person's humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. 
I, I think James' point here is that none of us can rely on anything to escape trials. So therefore, all of us ought to rely on God to endure trials faithfully. What does this do for us? Well, first, it gives us a realistic view of the world. We don't get so caught up in our comfort that we think that we are protected from hard things. I think we probably all know that by now. But if not, trials are coming. And nothing can protect you from them. But God can guide you through them. That's what James wants his readers to get. Turn to God, rest in him. But I think also quite subtly, James is introducing the idea that we ought to navigate trials as a community, not uh, being jealous of other people who seem like they don't have trials, because for that person, they're experiencing their trials too. This is why later on in, in the letter to James, he talks so much about the community and caring for one another and in protecting one another, either from sin or hardship. It's because all of us ultimately are in the same boat and all of us need to rely on God and we can do that better together. When we realize that none of us are God, none of us are exempt from trials, we need one another. So I would encourage this church, Grace Bible Church, God God is blessing you from everything we can see on the outside. But there are people in your church, some who are going through hard things right now while others aren't. Well, those who, those who are in your humiliation, so to speak, bear up the burden of those who are in their exaltation, who can see that they need God and others and know it. And pray that you will learn from them and develop the kind of faith you need so that when you're in that spot, not only will you be prepared for it, but also you'll be part of a community that, w- that will put an arm around you and carry you along the way. None of us are exempt from trials, and we need each other as we run to God to navigate through them. So truth number one, trials are for our good. Truth number two, trials are not bigger than our God. Truth number three, none of us are God, and trials remind us of that. But truth number four, trials will come to an end. Trials will come to an end. This is not a thing that will never go away. So James wraps it up in verse 12 saying, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. These words, this beatitude-like blessing, gives us the blazing hope that we need to face trials rather than the simple resignation that we'd otherwise have if we thought it would never end. But trials will come to an end, Because Christ will return in glory, and of his kingdom there will be no end. A day is coming when all will be made right. A day is coming when all will be made new. It doesn't mean that the scars of the brokenness will be taken away. Jesus, in his own resurrection, bore the wounds of his crucifixion. But those wounds testify to his glory and defeat over death. And ours will too. So wherever you're at in your trial, know that it will come to an end. It might not come to an end in this life. We're not promised that. There's a kind of Christianity that teaches that. 
That's not biblical Christianity. We're not promised end of our trial in this life, but we are promised an end to our trial. So let me give you four encouragements to press forward faithfully, to endure as we look to that end. Number one, pray for Christ's return and pray that you'll be faithful during that trial. This is what Christians have been doing for thousands of years. This is what the Apostle John does in the book of Revelation where he prays, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's add our prayers to his as we look for that final day. Number two, read texts of scripture that stir your affections for future glory and that allow you to grab onto the future joy. Read texts of scripture that help you see the world not as it is right now, but as God is making it to be. Read texts like Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, where we see the glory of the new Jerusalem, of heaven descending onto earth. Read texts like Isaiah 25 that describe the glorious mountain where we'll be welcomed to a meal of, of choice wine and choice cuts of meat. Read texts of scripture that show you that God is going to make all things new at the return of Christ. Number three, learn to sing songs for miserable Christians. What I mean that by that is learn to sing songs that can help you express the pain and suffering you're experiencing, but also learn to sing songs that help you rejoice with the future joy in the present. God made us this way. I can't explain it, but it's complicated. That's why we cry when we're happy and we sing when we're sad, right? It doesn't make sense, but God gives us these things because he draws us into community and we, we weep with one another and we rejoice with one another even when we're not feeling like it. So learn to sing those songs. And then finally, as you come to the table every week, and it's such a joy to hear that churches do that, remember that we do this, we proclaim Christ's death, the ultimate trial and suffering until he comes. Every time we come to the table, we anticipate Christ's return. So the four truths. Trials are for our good. Trials are not bigger than our God. Trials remind us that we're not God. And trials are going to come to an end. So let's pray for that day. Father, we thank you that you have given us the wisdom of your word. We pray that we would navigate our trials well and that we would anticipate the future when they will all come to an end. We pray that even now as we come to the table, we would trust and believe that Christ will return in glory and of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen.